Did I turn it on right? I did, yes. Passed the first test. <laughs> Good morning, church. Um, many of you probably don't know me. My name is Ryan. Uh, my wife Emily and I and our four children have been attending ICP for almost a year now. Um, you can probably tell from my accent that we're originally from the United States, but we've been living in Europe for over 10 years and some other places around the world before that. And so, like many of you, it's, it's hard to answer that question, where are, where are you from? Where am I from? Um, but I do know how grateful I am for the opportunity today to uh, be before you, bring the word of the Lord, the word of our King to you, um, and see what he has for us um, but I would be a fool to think I could do that under my own power. So please let me pray real quick. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we thank you for this gorgeous sunshine today, Lord. I pray that uh, as we dig into your word, Father, that you would uh, speak to us. We invite the Holy Spirit to fill this room right now, to enlighten our minds as to what you have that you've written for us, Lord. pray you'd give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I deliver your words, Father, and that uh, they would find good soil. Anything that I say that's not of you, May it uh, be erased from people's minds immediately, but anything that you have for anyone in this room, Lord, may it find good soil and bear fruit. We love you, Father. In your name, amen. Henry David Thoreau was a, a famous American essayist and philosopher back in the, the 19th century, and when he was close to death, he was visited by his pious aunt, his very religious aunt, who sat down next to him by his bed and said, Henry, have you made your peace with God? To which Henry then turned and looked at her and said, peace with God? I didn't know that we'd ever quarreled. For many of us, we realize that that kind of demonstrates Thoreau's um, spiritual ignorance. Uh, but I would imagine that for many people in the world today, they would probably give that kind of same answer, that they didn't know that they had sinned against God and, and thus had quarreled with him. Now, the Bible says that Thoreau needs reconciliation with God. But what exactly does that word reconciliation mean? kind of a, a big word, and we're going to talk a lot about it today. So it's really important that we all kind of get on the same page with what that word means. Reconciliation is basically restoring peace between two people where there's currently hostility or separation. It's this idea of exchanging conflict for goodwill, hostility for friendship. Uh, it's another way of saying mending, restoring, harmonizing, resolving Making peace, fixing, reuniting. Are you, are you getting the idea? It's going from something that's, that's friction to something that is good and peaceful. Okay, And it's a key concept. Um, one of my kids' favorite movies is Elf. We love the movie Elf. We watch it every Christmas. The whole plot of the movie Elf is the son trying to reconcile with the father, and then later on the father trying to reconcile with the son. In fact, if you think of your favorite movie, whatever it is, I can just about guarantee you that the main plot line has something to do with reconciliation in some way, shape, or form. It's, it's, it's something that's just kind of almost in our DNA that God has put that we love reconciliation because it's beautiful and it's healing and it's something that God is a master at. Thoreau didn't know that he had hostility with God, but he did. And the consequences with that are eternal. So, as followers of Jesus today, what does reconciliation have to do with us? Okay, Ryan, this is great. What is this all about? Uh, it actually has to do quite a bit with us. Uh, so today in our passage, we're going to look at uh, our motive, our ministry, and our message of what God has for us as his followers. So if you would uh, open up your Bibles or maybe power on your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 
as you're getting that passage ready, just kind of a bit of background. Uh, our passage comes out of 2 Corinthians, which was written on Paul's third missionary journey. Now, if you're like me, his first, second, and third missionary journey all kind of blend together, and you have no idea what happened on which one. Kind of the big event from the third journey was when, in Acts 20, when Eutychus fell from the window and died, and Paul prayed over him, raised him back from the dead. Maybe you remember that? Um, if you fall asleep in today's sermon, I can't do that. So just fair warning, you're on your own with that one. Um, but Paul wrote this uh, from Macedonia in about 55 AD, so kind of a year before Romans. And it's really important that you know about Corinth, because Corinth was not this little remote village that's kind of this obscure place that Paul's writing to, right? Corinth was this mega economic center of the ancient world. It had the Aegean Sea where, where the Isthmian Games were taking place, and, and just a lot of things were happening there. So think, think of like your New York City, or your Hong Kong, or your London of today, maybe with a little bit of Amsterdam's red light district thrown in there. And that's kind of this idea of who Paul is writing to. So it's very applicable for us today. It very well could be Prague. And in our passage, we're going to see that Paul is in defense of being an apostle, and we're at one of the most crucial junctions of his entire letter. So we're going to read through the passage, and then we're going to come back and see what did we just read. So Paul writes in verse 11 of chapter 5, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope that it's plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what's in the heart. If we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God, but if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ that way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. <laughs> there is a lot in that passage. Uh, we cannot cover all of that today. Uh, and so today what I really want to do is kind of focus in on some of the key points that I think are really important for us today to really understand because I think they're really applicable to us. So let's go back to verse 11 where Paul writes, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's plain to your conscience. Okay, so he has this, this statement, we know what it is to fear the Lord. What does that mean? Now, for some people, because we see in the Bible, um, oftentimes fear the Lord refers to this idea of this respect or this awe for God, this recognition of his holiness. And there is definitely that element of truth to it in this passage. But I think that here Paul is actually adding a little bit more to it. Because if you look at verse 10, which is always a good idea to look at the context of the passage, 
um, you'll see that he's talking about something. He says in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Gulp. The judgment seat of Christ. Paul's talking about this, this event where we all are going to stand before God and give an account for our earthly actions. I don't know about you, but that is terrifying for me to have to stand there and explain all these things I've done in my life. Paul recognizes that this judgment is coming. And so when he says this, this fear of the Lord is this combination of understanding the coming judgment combined with this respect and awe for the glory of God. He then goes on to say, we persuade men. Now we're going to unpack this more in verse 20, but basically what persuading men is telling others the good news about Jesus, the good news of salvation through Christ. In other words, the thought of this terrifying judgment that awaits us all is enough to move Paul, who's writing this, from this comfortable life as this religious leader that's well-respected from everybody to a life where he's shipwrecked, he's beaten with rods, he's robbed, slandered, goes without food, left to exposure, he's lashed, and he's stoned with rocks. That's a faith that costs something. That's a faith that understands the seriousness of this coming judgment. Let's look at verse 14. He says, For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. So Paul's starting to build on this idea of kind of our life's purpose. He writes, We are compelled by Christ's love. If you ever want to ask yourself a hard question, ask yourself, Are you compelled by Christ's love? Are you passionate in your faith when you're all by yourself and you're just alone with your thoughts? Do you love him enough to say that your love for him actually compels you to share your faith with others? He wrote, he wrote, Paul also writes in Romans 9, he says, My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed and cut off from Christ if that would save them. I can't write that, but that's what it looks like to be compelled. If we're honest, could we say those same words about those in our life, our bosses, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers that we have around us today here in Prague? Our faith has to mean everything to us before it'll mean anything to somebody else, right? He writes, we died for those that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. What does it look like to live for him and not for yourself? Well, I think the best example that I've ever seen um, deals with Count Zinzendorf and the Moravian Missionary Movement. See, these guys had a reputation for going to the hardest places on earth. And they were based in Hernhut, which is actually just north of here over the German border. And on October 8th of 1732, the first Moravian missionaries left Copenhagen on a Danish ship bound for the Danish West Indies. These two men you're looking at, John Leonard Dober and David Nitschman, were determined to sell themselves into slavery in the Dutch West Indies because they knew that those on the plantations had no other access to the gospel. So as they were getting ready to sail out of the harbor, their Moravian brothers and sisters lined the docks, and they were singing hymns of praise, and others were crying because they knew that they would never see them again this side of eternity. 
And as the boat slowly started to go out into the North Sea, one of these men ran to the stern and he shouted out the reason that they were taking this drastic action. He said, so that the lamb that was slain will receive the glory of his suffering. And those words actually went on to be the driving slogan of a missionary movement that would last the next 200 years. That's what it looks like to no longer live for yourself or your personal dreams or to have this goal of a comfortable and convenient life, but rather when you know the fear of the Lord and when you're compelled by Christ's love. Paul goes on in verse 17 to say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. What does that mean to be this new creation? Well, it means that you've been personally renewed. You are in Christ, joined together and united with him. You've experienced his forgiveness, and now you live for God and his purposes, and not just for your own. In other words, the person that you were the day before you became a follower of Christ is not the same as the person you were the day after you became a follower of Christ. Are you a new creation? That's a question that only you and the Lord can answer. But if you're not, I would highly encourage you to make yourself a new creation in Christ today. One of my favorite examples of something where God has been at work and the old has gone and the new has come, this phrase, is a place called the Gemini Lounge in New York City. Now, the Gemini Lounge in New York City was in Brooklyn. It was a bar that was owned by the mafia during the golden age of the mafia. It was owned by a Gambino gangster named Ray DeMeo. Now, in the back of that bar, that picture from the 1970s, uh, was a place where one of the gangsters named uh, Joe Guglielmo lived and where over 50 murders and tortures took place, 50 of them. It was so gruesome that the method used became known as the Gemini method. But today, that very same building is now Purpose Life Church. It's something that was old and has been made new, a place where terrible things took place, and now beautiful things take place. The name of God is praised every Sunday there. I love that image of God taking something old to new. So in the passage that we've looked at thus far, we've seen the kind of the idea of what is our motive, right? Our motive is that through the fear of the Lord and being compelled by his love, we are new creations in Christ who no longer live for ourselves. This is the why. So now, what do we do with that? Well, Paul tells us. Let's go on to verse 18. He says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now remember this definition of the word reconciliation. It's going from hostility to peace. From enmity or conflict to friendship. Four times in this, these two sentences, Paul uses the word reconciliation. If you've studied language, you know that's a literary technique. It's like he's waving this big flag saying, this is important. Pay attention to this. He also alludes to it in other places, Colossians 1, Ephesians 2, Romans 5. We're not going to look at those today, but my point is that this is a big deal for Paul. He's saying each one of us will stand before this judgment seat someday. You'll stand before God, and Paul is telling us to be reconciled. That means there's a state of hostility between you and God if you're no longer, or if you're not yet a new creation in Him. 
He's got this urgency to his message. In the next verse, we're going to see, he says, I implore you. It's a strong word. There's a sense of urgency there. But here's something key I really want you to see in this. Look at the process of reconciliation. He starts out, he says, all of this is from God. Okay? God is the starting point. And God had to do it because it begins with his will. It's now done through Jesus. He's the medium or the agent. And you're reconciled back to God. He's the end destination. So it starts with God, goes through Jesus, and goes back to God. Notice you are not in that process. It's not about you or what you've done. If it was, that would be works-based theology. You can't earn your way there, guys. It doesn't work that way. That's the bad news. The good news is God already did it for you. That's the great news. But you must be reconciled to God first before you can reconcile others to it. So what does that actually look like? Well, let's see in verse 20. Paul says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. These two phrases, we implore you and be reconciled, in the Greek language, that's the command form. All right? We don't have that in English. In English, we use things like tone and volume to kind of communicate a command. Greek is not that way. Greek has an actual form. It says, do this. And that's the form that he uses in these two phrases. There's no more forceful way to tell somebody to do that than what Paul uses here. And he says, we are Christ's ambassadors. If the last verses are the principle, guys, this is the practical. This is what we are to do. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. You say, great, Ryan, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, the dictionary defines an ambassador as a diplomatic agent of the highest rank, accredited to a foreign government or sovereign, as the resident representative of his own government or sovereign, appointed for special diplomatic assignment. That's a lot of words. (laughs) I don't think that actually captures what Paul is trying to communicate when he says that we are Christ's ambassadors. I have another definition that I think is better. But every time I hear the word, or every time I say the word ambassador, I want you to hear your name. And every time you hear the word government or ruler, I want you to think God. Okay? It says an ambassador, so I would say, so Ryan represents his or her government in all of its character, in all of its dignity, in all of its philosophy. To scorn that ambassador is to mistreat them, is to scorn and mistreat the government in which they represent. To send them away is to break off relations with the government and the ruler whom they represent. An ambassador speaks wholly for their ruler. They are the ruler's mouthpiece. They never utter their own thoughts. They never offer promises or demand their own things but rather those things of their kingdom. And certainly an ambassador's person and character and virtue lend weight to the authenticity and dignity of their kingdom. An ambassador then is a messenger. An ambassador is a representative. Their message and their authority are given to them by their king. That's how God sees us. That is an awesome responsibility. How am I qualified for that? But yet, This is our job description from the king. Church, you are an ambassador to your relational network, to your friends, to your family, to your coworkers, to your students, to your sports teammates, to your classmates. You are that ambassador of Christ to them. 
And it's not just this one verse here. Right? It's not Ryan just kind of parachuted in on this one thing and is trying to make a big, big thing about it. We see it all throughout 2 Corinthians when he uses phrases like anointed us, set apart, commissioned by God, letters of recommendation. These all speak to this idea of ambassadorship. And if that's not even clear enough, look at Philippians 3.20 where it says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Whether you're here for one week, a year, or a lifetime, Prague is not your home. Prague is your diplomatic outpost. Prague is your consulate. Prague is your embassy. Your home is somewhere far away and far greater. But until the king calls you back home, you have an assignment here as Christ's ambassadors. He is making his appeal through us to a lost world. We are God's plan A, and there is no plan B. That's a heavy responsibility, but what a privilege to serve the one that died for us. Now, please don't think that this is just kind of some ancient concept written a couple thousand years ago for a culture that doesn't exist anymore. I think you start to see this very idea, maybe in slightly different words, really, really becoming more popular today. Um, you might know it as TikTok influencers or YouTube personalities, but basically what's happening is we're seeing our cultures becoming more and more distrusting of traditional advertising, and so companies are using these people who you subscribe to their social media uh, because you like them or you trust them, and they're using them to promote products, services, that kind of stuff. They're really just brand ambassadors, really. It's really no different. Many people have a real strong distrust of the traditional or institutional church. But they like and they trust you. You are Christ's ambassador to this lost world. So how does one actually get reconciled to God? We know in the Old Testament that people were reconciled with, with sacrifices and, and a lot of ritual, countless rituals. Let's look at the next verse. This next verse, in full disclosure, is one of my favorite verses of the whole Bible. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We could do a whole sermon on just this one verse. There is so much here. It may be one of the most profound verses in the entire Bible. If you ever want to try something really cool when you're doing your quiet time, just kind of studying the, the word, uh, go to this verse and say this verse out loud over and over again, but each time put a different emphasis on a different word. So something like, God made him who had no sin. God made him who had no sin. God made him who had no sin. And it really is just a powerful way to really understand uh, exactly what the Lord did for us. This verse right here is the gospel message. This is it. We, we, we know John three sixteen. This is the gospel message that Christ paved that way back to us or back to God for us. So in our passage today, so far we've seen the why. We see this, this coming judgment that we're new creations and we're compelled by Christ's love. And we've seen the how as his ambassadors or his representatives. Now Paul is telling us the what. This is what Thoreau didn't understand. This is the message of reconciliation um, atonement is a fancy church word. Some of you may know that word. It's a, it's a fancy church word that explains this idea of reconciliation between God and people. But in a lot of languages, atonement and reconciliation are so intertwined that they're the same words. 
In Dutch, they use forsuning. In Czech, it's smirzhny. Um, it's this idea of our combination back to God. Uh, this message, this verse right here, is all that stands between heaven and hell. So, church, we are ambassadors of God. Everything that we do is done with this mindset of representing Christ and helping others be reconciled to God. Everything we do outside of that is great and wonderful. It's icing on the cake, but this is the core message that Paul is telling us that the Lord has for us. Now, sometimes you feel totally unequipped to do that, right? Um, To share this message of reconciliation does not require super advanced expert evangelism training or anything like that. You may remember in Mark 5, Jesus performs an exorcism on somebody and sends all of those demons into the pigs and they run off the hill. Uh, A lot of us are familiar with that story. But if you read on from that story, 10 minutes later, Jesus commissions that same man as a missionary to Decapolis, to 10 cities. He says, go, be my representative there. That guy didn't have a whole lot of theological training in 10 minutes, I guarantee it. But what does he do? He's obedient. He goes and he serves as the Lord's representative in 10 cities. If I can make it a little bit more real to us today, this is a passage that directly affects us because every two seconds, somebody somewhere in the world dies who does not know Jesus and they're facing an eternity apart from him. Every two seconds. One, one thousand, two, one thousand. One, one thousand, two, one thousand. One, one thousand, two, one thousand. Now, some of us today may need to examine how well we're doing being an ambassador of Christ and how well we represent him and asking ourselves when the last time that we shared this message of reconciliation was. Um, I was really saddened to to see a report lately that was done of churchgoers throughout the world. It was a global survey. Um, These are people who are committed followers of Christ. 47% said that they felt it was wrong to to, uh, share their faith with somebody else. They felt it was wrong to be a minister of reconciliation. Imagine if that person who led you to the Lord, who helped you become a follower of Christ, had that same mentality. Where would you be today? Or maybe if we're brutally honest about it, we don't share our faith because we just don't care. That's called apathy. When the infamous criminal Charles Peace was on his way to be hung, a prison chaplain offered him the consolations of religion. He responded by turning to the chaplain and asking, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Then with obvious bitterness, he said, if I believed what you believed, I would crawl across all of England on broken glass on hands and knees to tell people that message. Wow. That's what being compelled looks like. That's what somebody who takes that, the, the, the idea of this reconciliation message with God seriously. I'd ask you to take a moment right now and think about somebody that you know in your mind that does not know Jesus right now. It could be a friend, coworker, student, your dentist, I don't know, uh, anybody. But right now that person, if their name's not written in the book of life, church, they are running towards the gates of hell and they don't know it. Now right now you're at a crossroads here as we're coming to an end. In the next few minutes, You're going to walk out that door and you are entering your diplomatic outpost as ambassadors of Christ. And you have a choice that you can make. Now you can walk out of this room and think, oh, that was a nice sermon, that was a nice idea, Um, and nothing ever changes, essentially continuing in apathy. Or you can use today as a starting point for a new chapter in your life 
where you, your goal is to go out every day and those who the Lord has put in your path to represent him as his ambassador and share with them that message of reconciliation so that nobody that you know can ever say like Thoreau did that they did not know that they and God had ever quarreled. Church, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of the most important passages for our life as followers of Christ. We are new creations in Christ, and God has given us a job. What's that job? We are Christ's ambassadors. And as ambassadors, we represent and give messages from our king, specifically the message of reconciliation to a world that is perishing around us. We give them that message of salvation. We don't do this out of obligation or duty or guilt or anything like that. But we do it because we recognize the fear of the Lord, the judgment that awaits, that we're a new creation, and that we just love Jesus so much that we cannot not do it. It's the word of the Lord that I have for us today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we live in a place where we can open up your word without fear, um, without fear of the doors being kicked down and, and being detained or anything like that, Father. I pray for each one of us, myself included, Father, that you would bring to mind today, Lord, people in our lives uh, that we know that don't know you, people that we can be your ambassador to, where we can share this message of reconciliation about how they can be reconciled back to you, Father. Lord, we thank you for the awesome privilege it is to represent you to the world as your ambassadors, to be entrusted in our sinful, um, inadequate selves, to be entrusted with the most important message in human history, Father. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the cross and what you did on the cross for us. We thank you for your love, and we love you. Amen.